So hi and welcome back everybody to another Meet the Author. I know we had a little bit of a break over the summer, but we're back and hot to trot. So Gary, can you share with us who do we have today and what book are we looking at? Sure can. Well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Vincent Marchesani. As you can see from my background, he's, he's written a book that I was very intrigued with. It's called Communicating Science and Managing the Coronavirus Pandemic. And I thought this is a really interesting topic, Tamara and I, because uh, not only can we talk about the coronavirus, we have something called monkeypox is beginning to hit us as well. Mm -hmm. So anything that um, we talked a bit about pandemics or crises, you can always think about how is this applying to to monkeypox and God knows what other sort of um, zombie viruses that may emerge as the climate change thaws out the Arctic. That's always one of the things I read about. So Vince, welcome to the show. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's start and just ask you that basic question. What made you decide to write this book? Is, is there a need that you're trying to fulfill? Well, very good question. Um, frustration. <laughs> after listening to an abundance of misinformation about the coronavirus pandemic and its variants. I especially liked when it, uh, the people came up, and I've seen this on television, with the beginning words, we all know. That, uh, to my mind, is a super problem because what you're telling the people who are listening is that you don't know, but we all know, and therefore to you be part of the group, you have to listen carefully and accept what I'm about to say. Mm. That is so far from the truth. The one I heard that I especially liked, the lady said, um, and she was Dr. Somebody, uh, she said that if you received the vaccination, you became magnetized. I said to my wife, well, you know, that's not too bad. I keep losing my keys. I'll put the key on my forehead and it'll be fine. Obviously, what she was telling was not true. You do not become magnetized. There's no reason to believe it. But the way she phrased it made everyone go along. We need to distinguish between misinformation and information that is science-based, uh, that has undergone peer review. They need to get out a clear understanding of information based on science. One thing that I've advised people is that when you hear something that is not sit, sitting well with you, doesn't quite make sense, your response should be, I recommend that it be, thank you very much. I did not know that. Wow. Um, you learn something every day. Uh, by the way, can you please provide me the documentation that supports what you're saying? And by the way, Fred told me is not documentation. I heard it on television, is not documentation. Documentation is something you hold in your hand that is peer reviewed and has been proven. And statistical analysis plays a very big part in this, and I'm not gonna get into that detail, but in assuring people that things that are being said are correct. Um, one of the things that influenced me into getting into this years ago, and this you might appreciate, um, I was in a class called uh, techno or the technological communication. 
And the professor said, I want you all to go home tonight and write something short, maybe a paragraph, two paragraphs, no more than a page in defining pH. Okay. I mean, we're all science majors. We know that the pH is minus the log of the hydrogen ion concentration. So I need to write paragraph or a little bit about this and they'll get it done. He said, oh, by the way, there's a caveat here that I want you to introduce in what you're writing. Write this that a six-year-old child will understand it. Well, a six-year-old child is not gonna understand minus the log of the hydrogen ion concentration. And most adults won't understand. This was a super challenge, a challenge that really put me on a different path. And what it said was, science is complicated, science is difficult, but it can be communicated. And I'll leave you this one last thought before I take another question. I knew a gentleman who I worked with um, when I was in graduate school, and he developed a poster. And the poster had a cigarette on the left side with smoke coming out of it. No one smoking it, just a big cigarette with smoke coming out of it. An equal sign. And on the other side of the poster were 750 cans of diet soda. There were no words necessary. People look at that and say, well, I know diet soda is not necessarily great for you, but my God, if I have one cigarette, that's equal to having this number of diet sodas. What I'm saying here is things like this can be communicated, that they can be understood, and they can be documented. Well, thanks. Thanks for that opening, Vince. Uh, anybody out there, um, have you had similar situations or heard similar phrases, which makes you wonder, uh, is this really information, misinformation, disinformation? Anybody got something they'd like to share with us, um, what they've come across recently? Um, if you do, just open up your mic and just, um, just share with you for a few seconds. Anybody? Rosa, Tanya, you got anything you've heard? Rosa, I, I, you must have something. Yeah, I can see you nodding your head. <laughs> oh, got to mute yourself. Mute. There you go. Okay. This is of muting and unmuting. It's going to go into the annals of uh, the era, the COVID era. <laughs> you have a, uh, a graphic for, for that. Uh, <laughs> um, no, no, I was just reacting to the fact that your teacher was so wise to ask you to write something for, uh, for a child because almost everything scientific or even in our field of, of safety, uh, um, any kind of uh, research is, is not written to be understood. And it seems to be a code, right? Yes. Uh, if you can't write like this, you're not really that smart. And, and by the way, uh, you know, they, they put this long stream of references on there. And I've often wondered how, whether they've actually read it <laughs> or whether they've only just put in the references to, to give themselves credibility. It's, it's, it's just not working for me. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Another expression that I've heard is that um, someone told me, uh, and the, but I don't know his name, but from what I understand, he's a good source and therefore we can depend on it. And then the, what, the, what he heard or what she heard is stated. My point is, 
if it's a good source, if it's from quality, then you should know the name and you can share the documentation. If you can't do that, then it's probably non-existent. Yeah. yeah, well, in your book, you do talk a bit about the scientific method to prepare communication findings. This leads to that bigger question, what is the truth? Does, does science actually provide the truth? Uh, can you give, give me some thoughts on that? Yes, the science can provide the truth. Um, I'll give you another interesting story. When I was doing my PhD thesis, I was very excited because the data that I was getting, and I did some of the work in the basement of my home with my wife and kids upstairs, which is interesting. Uh, and I won't bore you with the research, but um, I was excited and I met with my committee. Now, if those familiar, maybe you don't know, uh, in order to get a PhD degree, you have to have, be a candidate, you have to pass a candidacy exam in front of your peers, in front of these professors. And then after that, you have to defend your thesis. Well, I was up to the point where I was defending the thesis, but not formally as of yet. I had invited my committee in to hear results to date because I was very excited because it was demonstrating what I thought it should. And after I finished, I had a big smile on my face and I turned to the group and, uh, one of the gentlemen said to me, um, Vince, you're a nice guy, but I don't believe you. And I looked at him sort of quizzically. What do you mean you don't believe me? I did a lot of work. It's all here. It's... And he said, come see me. And I did. And I'm getting to, your getting to your question, Gary. He said to me, are you familiar with the t-test analysis? I said, yes, I was. And he said, I want you to run the t-test analysis against your data. And he said, when you run that, I think you're gonna have the results that you're looking for. And he said, the important thing is this, right now I'm arguing with you. The T-tests demonstrate the same thing you're saying. I can no longer argue with you. I have to argue with the T-test and I can't do that. So science can, very simple explanation of what I'm talking about. We've all seen the bell-shaped curve. Okay, and many people, as, as in the book, I said, when we, I get into the chapter on mathematics and science, I said, don't turn the page, don't skip the chapter, just hang in there for a little bit. And, and basically what it says is that, the best example is a, a teacher that has 100 students. And if the, the teacher gives the test, and my, my wife uh, was a teacher, and the results come back, and you may have uh, half a dozen in the 90s, majority in the 80s, a couple in the 70s, maybe 160, and this can all go on a bell-shaped curve, and then you can evaluate, do they all fit under that curve? And if they do, that would be sort of, what's called a normal distribution of results from the test. However, you have one student that got a two, a two out of 100. And that student managed to drag down the grade for the entire class below 70. A reflection on the class, a reflection on the teacher. However, if you got rid of the two, okay, then the grades would have been above 70, everybody would be happy, and everybody did a good job. Okay, can you get rid of the two? Statistical analysis says 
that with a 99.9 or 99.5% probability, that too is significant in that it's outside the expected database. You can get rid of it. From a mathematics standpoint, statistical analysis, you can get rid of that too. Enabled everybody to be happy, but there's documentation as to why you can do that. So yes, mathematics can go a long way in helping to document things as correct. So now we're discovering under complexity science, and Michael, you can chip in any time here, sometimes outliers are become quite critical. Yes. You know, from your typical normal distribution curves and else, but we find that the world really actually is, um, follows a pre distribution. Mm -hmm. And if we ignore those outliers, um, they may be ones that are providing what we call the weak signals. Yes. Yes, the, the, my point is when you go back and look, it turns out that the child with the two was sick and did not study for the test. So yes, you can't ignore it. You gotta go back and look, but from a mathematics standpoint, you can get rid of it. Sure, right. Okay. So let's, let's apply this to safety science. And we've gone down the rabbit hole a bit um, and maybe go down a bit further. But there is this argument that safety science is a social science. And because obtaining repeatable evidence is difficult, the scientific method of constructing a falsifiable hypothesis doesn't work well. So, so if, that's, if you accept that, how do, we, how do we trust safety science? I got another good question. Um, I believe safety science is a, a social science. Now, let me explain uh, the Hendrick Pyramid, which uh, many people have taken a shot at, but I look at the Hendrick Pyramid differently. Uh, is it correct? Yes and no. Well, what do I mean? I mean, it's correct in that you would expect for every fatality, you'd expect a certain number of dismembering injuries a certain number of uh, lost time injuries, a certain number of OSHA recordable injuries, a certain number of first aids. So there's, it, it's a pyramid as Hendrik mentions. And by the way, I think this was done around 1918, 20, some, 31, 1931. Yep. And that basically we're talking risk. We're talking risk because that difference between number of fatalities, number of uh, recordables, number of first aids, yeah, it would be an increasing number, but some people have tried to put exact numbers on this. You can't. You can't put exact numbers because it depends upon industry. If I have an industry that's making um, rubber bands, okay, the risk of somebody dying from making a rubber band is probably a lot lower than the industry I worked in where they had knife blades sharpened to unbelievable tension so that it cut plastic into small little bits that they could be heated, melted and formed into things like the tops of lawn uh, mowers, okay? Bright colors, et cetera. So yes, there is uh, a relationship but it's not an exact relationship. So I give Heinrich for coming up with it and that um, 
and that it, it, there are mathematics, there are you know, all kinds of analysis that would push this a little more into the pure science state, but because it involves people and risk to people, that's more to the social side. But the brief word risk, because some people get very confused. In order to have a risk, you have to have three things. You have to have a hazard, okay? You have to have a receptor of the hazard. And you have to have the means of transport from the hazard to the receptor or the receptor to the hazard. I point out in the book, children walking across a field and it's six, uh, 12 inch high grass and the children are about three feet. So they really can't see the hole that's 50 feet away. And as they walk together toward that hole, their risk goes up. The transport to the hazard, okay? If they just take a half a degree or a degree to the left or right, as they approach the hole, the risk goes down. But if they turn back, the risk goes up. So with any risk, you have to have a hazard, or the, then you have to have the receptor of the hazard and the means of transport. Well, since we are talking a bit about viruses, um, why don't we just spend a few seconds and just talk a bit about the science behind all social distancing and maybe science behind wearing a mask. So again, can you explain it to us if we, if we were six-year-olds? Yeah, I, I, would <laughs> I will present it to the adults and intelligent people that you are. <laughs> um, a couple of things, and are very, very important. Viruses are not alive. Now that may come as a surprise, but if you go to the physician with a cold and the physician says to you, he or she says that you have a virus, often they will not prescribe an antibiotic. Why? Because the antibiotic is designed to kill bacteria. There is no nucleus. and the virus cannot reproduce. So what, did it, what is it? It's a complex chemical protein, okay? That floats through the air and it's very, very, very heavy. Viruses, and uh, I'm talking about all viruses, they fall into these general categories. But coronavirus specifically is horribly heavy. It's about 1700 times heavier than air, okay. And you're going to back up and say, whoa, tell me something about this. Well, air has weight. Well, how does air have weight? Well, when you go to the store and you buy the balloon for the party and the balloon goes up when you bring it in the house and the, report, the poor child lets it go and would like the balloon back as it sits on the ceiling, that goes up to the ceiling because what's in, what's in the balloon is lighter than air. That's why it goes up. Specifically, it's helium, and the helium has a molecular weight of four. Now, disregard if you're not familiar with molecular weight, don't, work, don't even consider the words. Just know that it has a number four. Air is 29. So helium is lighter than air, and it goes up. Now, getting to your point, the virus comes out of the nose, goes to the ground, okay? Six-foot distance is because it goes to the ground 
And if someone has it and you're six foot away, the likelihood of you getting is slim. However, very quickly, projectile coughing, projectile sneezing, talking, yelling, singing, all carry this virus beyond six feet. Going to the mask. In general, okay, masks are critically important to this, uh, protecting yourself from this virus. About 85% of the virus enters the body through the nose and the mouth. Therefore, the mask covering the nose and the mouth blocks entrance. It's not political, it's protection. Now, let me give you an analogy here. And I've told people this. It's, it's a Wednesday night, you and your family are gathered around the television, it's about eight o'clock, it's warm, it's summertime. And the sun is going down, but not quite there. And all of a sudden you hear crash. You look up and you look around and you realize that a baseball has come through your picture window. Your first immediate reaction is, how are the kids? Then anybody could cut with the flying glass. How about the wife? How about the husband? Okay. Is everybody okay? Once that's realized, you move the children out and maybe you and your wife or you and your partner or whatever, clean up that glass because you don't want anybody to step on it. It's eight o'clock at night. The kids may be in pajamas and step on the glass. So you clean that up. In the process, you look at this hole in the window and you say to yourself, I got to fix this now because we're gonna to sleep tonight and there's a risk of somebody entering this house through that broken window. Now you're thinking, can I get the wood, yeah, four by eight piece of plywood over at Lowe's? Can I get it over at Home Depot? Who's open? How can I get it here? And how can I get it up? Why? You're protecting you and your family. That is no difference from you protecting you and your family with the mask. Same principle. And that, that I had actually created a while ago, a poster that says, because you remember all the people who were saying, this is a hoax, this is on and on and on. In the same way, the poster of the cigarette and equal sign and the soda, I put down a mask plus a syringe, which, which was the vaccine, an equal sign, the word freedom, because you are now free from the fear of getting the virus. Now, okay, there are variants. Variants have caused the problem. There's new um, vaccine coming out. Uh, my wife and I plan on getting it uh, because anything that blocks entrance to the cell. People have said to me, this stuff must grow because it spreads in my friend's lung. Okay, and therefore it grows. So you can't be right. No, it doesn't grow. It can't reproduce. However, it hooks into the lung cells. It injects the DNA and RNA into the lung cell. The lung cells reproduce and take the virus with it. That's how it spreads throughout the lungs. This makes sense. And we don't hear this. Mm -hmm. So when you hear somebody say, we have to kill this virus, immediately turn it off. Yeah, right. Tamara, you got a comment? Yeah, no, not a comment, actually a question. Um, 
when you when you were ta talking about our natural instinct to protect, I, I thought that metaphor with the window, right, was very, very good because you're you're right. When something like that happens, we do and we don't even think about go through all these stages of protection. So I'm kind of curious why I, I, I'm not seeing that from my years of experience inside workplaces. And maybe you can help shed some aha moment on that because a light bulb went off that that's a very key element to you know, creating um, environments that are healthy and safe is protection. Or am I off on my own planet here? No, you're you're right on target. You're right on target. Um, I'm not a social scientist, uh, so I, I can't give you facts. But in a workplace, there are uh, personal interactions uh, where there are um, it, it goes to the, the heart of growing up, uh, the attitudes, beliefs, and feelings that you create as you're going growing up. I mean, I come from a generation where when you first, when you grow up, um, I remember I had a nephew at a birthday party. He was three years old. He was playing Ring Around the Rosie, if you, where there were all the kids are dancing and so forth. And his father went up to him and said, that's a girl's thing. That's a sissy. The poor kid dropped his hands. You know, he didn't want to be part of the group anymore because he was not going to be accepted as a male, on and on. Today in the workplace, machoism exists. And that, uh, you know, Fred here is, or is, uh, Jim here is, is wearing a mask. Ha. Like I remember, um, and I won't get into the politics, that's very wrong. Uh, but one person was speaking and one senator said, you're wearing two masks. That's theater. No, I'm sorry to say it's not theater. When you're a mask, unless it's a respirator, which seals to the face, you have openings in the mask. Okay. A second mask will cover some of those openings. There'll still be openings, but less. So I've told people, the virus is going to be there. Um, it's, it's not going away. Let me, let me quickly add some things because these are very important to think about. In 1918, the influenza virus hit the world incredibly hard. There were no, I mean, 50 million people died. There were no vaccines to prevent it. And a very interesting story goes this way. The US troops went over to fight the First World War about 1918, 1919 in the bottom of ships. They were extremely close together. Influenza virus was rampant, killed a huge number of US soldiers. The exact number never published. It was never published in Great Britain. It was never published in Germany. It was never published in France. Why? Because they didn't want the enemy to know that they were losing troops to this virus. The only country, the only country that figures on the number of people died was Spain. Hence, 
the Spanish flu. <laughs> okay, that's how it came named the Spanish flu because Spain was the only one reporting deaths and illnesses. <clears throat> yeah, amazing. Well, I noticed it's already wow, bottom of the bottom of the hour. Uh, there's we've covered a lot in the first in the top, but I want to hit now the um, second major topic in your book, which is about pandemic management. So, Vince, in the book, you you identify nine stages to manage a pandemic. Can you give us a quick walkthrough on a high level what these stages are? Sure, be happy to. First of all, the way a pandemic works, and it's different than a crisis. Um, Okay, back up. The pandemic will create crises. I want to make that clear. And then I'll come to each stage. Why is it important? Because the pandemic we all saw created shutdowns of business. Shutdowns in business resulted in layoffs. Layoffs resulted in loss of income. Loss of income resulted in mortgages not being able to be paid people not able to buy food, long lines, on and on and on. These all are crises that spin off from the pandemic. It's important from a management standpoint that these crises do not interfere with the management of the pandemic. Because if you begin to put effort to satisfy these crises that spin off, that's very important that it be done. But if you solve the mortgage problem, you still won't stop, stop, solve the pandemic problem. But if you solve the pandemic problem in time, you'll solve the mortgage problem. So that's why in managing this, you need a group, a pandemic management team. And every time a crisis emerges, you create a separate team with experts in that area who keep the pandemic management team informed. Okay, back to your comment. The pandemic is a little different than crisis because the first four stages are pretty much the World Health Organization doing their thing. An event, okay, all of a sudden there are, this virus is showing up and there's reports coming in to the uh, World Health Organization. These reports in stage two, you're gathering the information. Uh, they're trying to determine the seriousness of this. Stage three, there needs to be a decision. Are we in a pandemic or are we not? Once that decision is made, we move to stage four, which is the identification and that the decision has been made by the World Health Organization that we are in a worldwide pandemic. I'm going to go back on this in a second, but there's goes a very important period piece here. But let's stay go to stage five, stabilization of the event. Between the announcement that is a worldwide pandemic and the stabilization is where all the work gets done by the pandemic management team in trying to bring stability. Now, what is stability? Stability means 
you have now control over the, the actual number of cases are down, the number of deaths are down. It has not disappeared, but you've reached a point where you can step back and says, say it's stable. Stage six, you wanna assess the damage, the community, the impact post-stabilization. Mind you, still efforts are ongoing to, to bring this thing to an end. So you're assessing the damage. Stage seven is remediation and cleanup. Remediation cleanup with regard to this is that many of the hospitals will have gauze, they'll have tubing, they'll have all kinds of things that came in contact with the virus. So you have to get rid of that. You have to incinerate it. You certainly don't want to put it out in a trash can. Recovery. Well, there's never total recovery, but you get as close as possible to the norm of what it was before the pandemic was announced. Okay, now, <clears throat> lastly is closure, stage nine. You bring the matter to a close, but again, people have lost loved ones, which will never be replaced. So closure is not the way it was, okay? But you bring it to a closure. But let me go back and go back to the point where I said stage four is where the World Health Organization announces there's a pandemic. And then the rest of the countries begin to go into their programs to bring stability. All right. The World Health Organization has a criteria by which they identify a pandemic. And that, pandem that criteria involves regions that they've created. For example, one region is um, Australia and China, the, that area uh, of the world. North and South and Central America, another region. So if they have two countries in each one of those regions, or two in one and one in another, and there's like four or five regions, if that is occurring, they can declare a global pandemic. But you say to me, but there are no cases in the US. Do we enter into that? In the book, I've created two sets of matrices, whereby as you work through the matrices and you start adding things up that all of a sudden we don't have any cases, but there's people shutting down factories because people are sick. And these other things are fitting in because when, when you declare a pan pandemic, it's cost money, we know that. Any crisis type situation costs money to deal with. So in the book, there are two separate matrices that allow you to look at what's going on and make your own decision within your own country or region, whether or not you should declare a worldwide a country pandemic and join with the rest of the world, or you can join without it. You can just say the rest of the world has declared it. We will, even though we have a half a dozen cases, we're going to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you devote a whole chapter 11 to the topic of developing a pandemic management plan. Yes. And I think in Appendix 4, you even offer a template for those maybe that don't have it. So can you just briefly explain what's in a management plan? Because you also talk about using a facilitated team approach. Yes. Basically following a plan you check to act management system, which I think most of us are familiar with. So can you elaborate on that? Sure. Thank you. 
Um, let's start with one of the things I really like to hit on because over time, I did a fair amount of crisis management. Uh, actually, I did run crisis drills, crisis exercises for companies, whereby I go in and I find the weakness of the company, and then I declare a pandemic, and we test their plan. Now, one of the things that became very clear when we got into this was that how, how big should the plan be? Um, who needs to be trained? Having somebody to run into a crisis team meeting with a 500 page plan is a waste of time. I repeat that a 500 page plan is a waste of time. Why? Because nobody's read it. And that what are you supposed to do with it? And you're going to thumb through it and try to find the section that might apply to what you're doing? No. You need a facilitator of the plan. Why? Because time and money were spent in putting the plan together. The facilitator is the plan owner. The facilitator gets all the write-offs on because it has to be signed by every member of the pandemic management team. And by the way, every, every person on the plan, pandemic, pandemic management team has a job. If they can't contribute, they cannot and should not be there. So the facilitator steps through the steps in the plan, like, okay, what resources do we have for this particular crisis? Uh, where do we know it's going on? Do we have, um, we have list of outside consultants, inside consultants, who goes where and when, okay? That's all decided in the flow chart within the book as, as well. So, so I talk about uh, plan, do, check, act. Okay, what in the world am I talking about? Well, every organization has a list of documents or they should. And that these documents are somewhere in the organization because I've been there as well. Uh, you know, wh where's this plan? Well, I know Fred wrote it, but, I, but he's been on vacation for two weeks. I'm not sure I know where it is. That happens more than not. So as you put this plan to check act together, you begin, the crisis team begins to look at what they have in place to address this pandemic or crisis. Is it in the book? No. It's not in the crisis management plan. Crisis management plan should be no more than 30 to 50 pages. I repeat that, 30 to 50 pages, that's it. Any document that you need or may need to like, what are the procedures you have to do this? What are your standards or guidelines for this or that? They're referenced in the plan. Not only that, they tell you where they are, that you can go from the crisis management room pull it off the shelf because it says exactly where it is and they can be used rather than clutter the plan with all these documents. So you put the plan together and you implement the plan. Implementation is due of the plan due. So now you're implementing the plan. Third step, check. The most important step of the plan. Check means, is it working? You're checking whether or not it's working. You're getting feedback. I've told people, if you don't measure it, 
Don't do it. Why? Because if you don't measure it, you'll never know if you're making progress. And worse yet, you'll never know when you're done. So measuring is critical. So let's say you're measuring and it's not working. It's not having the effect that you thought it could or would. Well, that's why in this plan, you have feedback loops. You take it back where you decided that we should do this. Now you wanna rethink doing this. Maybe we should do that, okay? So the feedback loops allow you the opportunity to make changes in your plan to bring it to quote stability, okay? And to uh, run through the checks that say you're making progress. When you're making progress, you're in the right direction. Act, what in the world does act mean? Act means, as I said at the beginning of, of this, this section, this chapter 11, act means that you have a, a list of policies, procedures, guidelines, standards, programs, and practices, okay? You have them for, for, your, for your company. Now you've now, with this pandemic or with this crisis spinoff or whatever, you created new documents. Should they become part of the overall company list of documents? That's the act. That's where management decides, yeah, we need to keep this. Right. Also need in part of this, uh, a spokesperson. I ran uh, exercises can, whereby- can I, can I just hold you off that topic on company sure. messaging? Because I want to leave that for the last 10 minutes here. Because Michael, I see your hands up. Can you share a comment or a question? Yeah, no, no. It, it, I mean, this is fascinating, Vince. Um, one of the things that, you know, I've got an engineering background like Gary. Um, so applied science is something that's deep in, in, in the schooling. And, and one of the things that I find uh, appalling at the moment is public health agencies around the world in different countries are not learning from the mistakes and, and, the, and the, the, the politicization of the messaging is not acknowledging errors made. So um, if you look at, and, and the challenges is at the start, because we're dealing with an emerging uh, virus uh, situation, um, it was rapidly changing on the ground. So the plan, do, check, act cycle had to ha have very fast, rapid cycles and feedback had to be taken on. But I don't think that was adequately seen and what disturbs me right now is is the it's quite quite apparent that that the strength of the messaging to to portray confidence didn't allow the learning that was necessary of the science on the ground. I mean, there was everyone uh, everyone understood that the vaccines when they first rolled out held huge promise, uh, and many you know highly uh, uh, powerful uh, public officials declared that this is going to stop transmission where we finally you know the science and the data the feedback came in we realized that these were not durable vaccines uh, to what extent was probably not not studied at length uh, the other thing is 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 one of the uh, aspects of data and feedback is comparison studies so if for example masking if i have not come across any studies that look at it on a population basis look at a highly vaccinated region state city uh, preferably densely populated and then go to another equivalent because there are reference populations be it in africa be it in india and other places that 
for whatever reason, did not have the same PPE, the masking that was available, and do a population study to, to really understand the impact and effectiveness. Because some of the science uh, that, that you refer to is, is actually controversial on particle uh, uh, um, uh, uh, sort of holding back and, and preventing transmission. Mm -hmm. So, and and this is where I think that the that the communicating the science has failed is is we have not acknowledged errors made, and we have not taken the full feedback on board. Because what's fascinating to me as an engineer and 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 and, and really interested in statistics is I look at the anomalies, especially on large populations. How does our management of the pandemic in the West, be it in Canada, U.S., be it in Western Europe, and and those are a lot of differences. Sweden was highly criticized. Right, but I have not read any studies that say, okay, that what the predominantly the majority of public health officials, which criticize Sweden's approach at the start, I have not read any studies that actually look at, well, how did Sweden do relative to a similarly populated province or state in Canada or the US? And do that comparison to understand, was the criticism warranted or did the Swedish public health officials know something different? Same could be said if you look at certain regions of India, which have highly populated dent population densities, very low vaccination rates, and yet a completely different performance on how they manage the pandemic. Yep. So I don't think at the moment, I think there's a huge disconnect on how the strength uh, and certainty that the, that the science was communicated, and I fully appreciate what you said, you know, that, that's a classic lead-in that a lot of journalists use. Well, we all know the science says this. Right. Well, you know, that puts puts everyone on hand. And it's, you know, I remember this This reminds me, um, uh, uh, Gary and I know our public health off, um, uh, doctor here, Dr. Bonnie Henry. And I remember re and I was listening to a lot of announcements daily uh, when, when things were highly uncertain. And she said something and it triggered something to me and says, no, I think I read something that was a bit different. Did a quick Google search and I found a John Hopkins University, a very recent you know, study that was three, four weeks old, completely contradicted her messaging and the actions that she was taking to enforce certain policies that they were rolling out. And so at this point, I'm now drawing uh, uh, a suspicion that how much can I trust in the messaging? So I think there's a whole host of lessons that can be learned on how to manage communications and the authority structures that are communicating science need a much more honest way to acknowledge mistakes and to uh, a better way to earn trust in the population. And I think that's a critical uh, mistake that has been made in many parts of the world and continues, unfortunately. And Michael, this is a great segue for the last portion because um, Vince does talk a little about in the book about how important company messaging is all about. Yeah. So you share some of your do's and don'ts. So can you share that experience? And then uh, I think Rose, Rose is trying to get Rose is kind of waving her hand. Yeah. Um, can you make it quick? Because we want to spend some time messaging or maybe you can add to that, Rosa? Well, I, I could make it quick. However, um, here's this is the problem, uh, which is that Science doesn't determine what people do. You can give them as much information as you have, but that doesn't mean that people are going to believe it and it's not going to impact their, their necessarily impact their behavior. I was very shocked to um, go see one of my uh, best and longest time friends, um, very intelligent woman in New York City, 
and she's basically cloistered because she says all the research she's done and the studies she's read indicates that the um, uh, COVID-19 uh, immunizations are very, uh, are going to have long-term detrimental effects on the human body. And uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert, therefore I can't verify whether that science is correct or not. Um, and, but I am deeply impacted by the fact that one of my best friends, who I consider to be highly intelligent, is doubting, is saying this, um, you know, this is going to eventually come around and kill us. So um, I don't know, uh, Vince, what you thought about this because you said you're not a social psychologist, so I don't expect you to, but I know that that's a very real aspect of managing the, um, the pandemic. Could, have you gotten, what are your thoughts on that aspect of managing the pandemic, the, the social side? Well, first of all, thank you. And thank you, Michael. I appreciate your input and what you're saying. Um, a couple of things. Number one, Michael, you erased the point. Um, how do we know it's working? Uh, the data is not being shared. Okay. I did see data on influenza during uh, 2020 or 21. The influenza cases were down dramatically, dramatically because masks are being worn. So if it's preventing that virus, it's preventing the coronavirus as well. And by the way, there are seven or eight different coronaviruses and most of them are the common colds. In the book I say, and uh, I spend time with it too, you should never, and I don't like absolutes, but you should never put a scientist in front of a television camera, okay? Because all the public wants to know is everything's going to be all right. Just tell me it's going to be fine. Tell me that my kids aren't going to be impacted by this. Just tell me that and I'll go away and I'll be happy. The scientist runs through their mind all the variables, the probabilities before they make a statement, which prevents them from making the statement. And that therefore what was needed in this, and I believe it 100%, was a public relations person to respond to the questions and not a scientist. A public relations person can make a mistake. A public relations person can say very simply, I don't know the answer to that. And that's acceptable, okay? However, an expert cannot stand up there and say, I don't know the answer to that. Because if they don't know the answer, why are you there? Give me somebody else. Give me somebody who knows, okay? So again, this comes down to management and the messaging that Gary was talking about. There should be no more than three messages. I used to say three to five, but three. Why? The public relations person is trained. And I had three separate courses in dealing with the media. And the first thing I learned right off the bat, <coughs> excuse me, is the media needs me more than I need the media, okay? So I can say, without me giving them information, they don't have anything to write about. So they need me to respond. But if they need me to respond, I can control the interview. I could demand to see all written questions. I could demand to see 
um, any document they want me to comment on. And that way, there's a segment that I've, I've seen happen. First of all, you need two people there, one person being interviewed, the public relations person, and another person to listen. Because in the he, the discussion, the person that's listening, okay? For example, I, I point out, uh, there's some I should tell you, I wish we had more time. Uh, I point, uh, point out that in the middle of the interview, suppose the interviewer says, um, yes, I hear you, but what about your stock price? It fell dramatically. Can you respond to what's going on in your company? This is live television, okay? The answer to that from a public relations person is rather simple. Um, that's a very good question, but frankly, we're not here to discuss that. We're here to discuss the coronavirus and that's why the people have tuned in. So it's not a question for this discussion. That is a fair response rather than try to answer the question. The messages have to be clear to the point and they have to show, for example, I talk about a standby statement, a statement written by a company if they have a crisis or the government, whereby in the middle of the crisis, you issue the standby statement, which is about 60% boilerplate. Here's our company, here's our safety record. We can, and then 40% on what's going on right now. Never, and I don't like absolutes, never give an opinion. Only facts, because if you get into an opinion, you're opening the door, which is a total mistake. So messaging is critical and you want a company spokesperson to give the messaging. I did an exercise once where I brought in television cameras and put them in the hallway outside the crisis management room. And about halfway through the exercise, I said, by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are television cameras in the hallway and they were there. I said, now, which one of you want to go out and talk to them? There were no volunteers, okay? But we had the public relations person gave that public relations person the messages and they knew to go out and answer the question and without taking a breath, give the message. And then next question, out taking a breath, give the second message and maybe repeat the first message, okay? So the people are hearing the messages that are important for them to hear. Okay. Anybody else had any feedback on company messaging? Michael, I think you um, rang a couple of bells for me as well, because you know we're, we're experiencing it right now, of course, in British Columbia. Here we are in the, uh, what, sixth wave already? And Dr. Henry just issued out her latest message and you kind of like digest that with a different eye now, just trying to understand what's going on. Okay. Okay, we're down to our last um, four uh, minutes. Gary, oh, come here, I have seen Tanya sharing some stuff oh, in the chat. Yeah. So can we invite her to share sure. a little bit? They got a lot of good goodies in there. Thank you, Tanya. You do. Come here. Go ahead, Tanya. Well, I guess, I guess overall, um, I was, I actually was somewhat um, 
I, I mean, I don't, I don't mean for this to come off the wrong way, but I was somewhat excited at the beginning of this pandemic. Not that I, you know, enjoyed all the deaths and things like this, but for the very first time in my lifetime, the curtain was rolled back on how science is actually practiced and people could see experiments live people could see data live people could see experts disagreeing people could see how this actually works and i thought this is fantastic because for the first time ever in my lifetime anyway you know you don't you this is all out for everybody to to actually see and experience and you don't need this translator in the middle because it's all there for you however <laughs> i don't think my optimism was somewhat short-lived when i realized maybe i i had um my it was a little bit too idealistic to have uh maybe people um be able to take in the data directly and and understand that conflict is all right especially if you're in this era in this space of uncertainty um i just that that might have been my main insight in this whole thing that's um i i was hoping for a little bit more um understanding from the general populace than i think i actually saw and if I may comment on that, because I wrote myself a note, uh, this is my opinion, okay? And my opinions are always dangerous. Um, I don't think science did an adequate job in addressing the misinformation. Uh, what should have happened is that things like I identified earlier, there was another one about if you get vaccinated, your arm will fall off. Uh, and that was out there. Okay, they didn't need to come in and disagree. Science didn't need to come in and disagree. Science needed to come in with a sledgehammer and destroy the misinformation, just factually destroy it. And they did not do it. And when you don't do that, do you condole what is being said? You don't disagree with it. So therefore maybe you become magnetized I mean, obviously you don't, but you need, they needed to come in with a sledgehammer and actually make all this information so nonsensical that people, the general public, would have just, just turned it down and, and discarded it, but it didn't happen. The, the other thing that hasn't happened, Vince, though, is, is, is there's no effort to make... Um, uh, control groups at large, large population level. Like one of the things that Gary and I, you know, coming from a complexity science point is if you're dealing with an emergent, uncertain, complex situation is you need multiple approaches because you're learning as you're going. Um, and a lot of public health agencies around the world tended to use very selective control tools, right? Isolation, masking at the start, putting a lot of uh, preference on the vaccine. But all populations have a certain percentage of people that did not agree with aspects of the public health, the, the dominant uh, approach. So I have not seen any study that said, look, let's take the 
10 or 12 or 15 percent of all Canadians or a sample, significant sample of them that have refused to take any vaccine. And let's compare them to the population that took only Pfizer and the boosters. And like, where is the science on giving us a learning on how things are going? Um, and 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 that's from a again from a scientific method perspective. Before you communicate, you got to ask yourself: Are we actually treating this effectively as as you know as scientists? And and I haven't seen evidence of that. I I, I welcome it. I please you know share some links that actually have those control group uh, sort of assessments on different approaches in the pandemic. That's why I raised Sweden. That's why I raised different parts of the uh, of the world. Uh, and where are those comparative studies? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, I mean, and, if, and if we really want to learn from this pandemic so that we can manage the next pandemic better, we need to know these differences, right? Because it gets very complex with political powers that are manipulating things. You've got a lot of monetary benefit and, and influences that are at play. Um, and this and this is what makes it difficult to us that, you know, really value facts and science um, is is when that's not uh, adhered to, and then and then we and then we get into those processes where we're not trusting the the messaging that's coming out. Oh yeah, I totally agree with you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, here we are, top of the hour. I told you this; it goes really, really fast for this hour. So again, um, I'd like to always end these sessions with three takeaways that you would leave the viewers. Can you share them with us? Sure, by all means. First of all, life is a learning process. When you hear something does not make sense to you, question it, ask or even demand the documentation that supports what you're being told. You know, and as I said before, I heard it from Fred or it's on television is not documentation. Documentation is something you can hold in your hand and is peer reviewed. The second one, People are entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Therefore, if you do not receive the documentation you're requesting, you're hearing someone's opinion, and that's fine. They're entitled to their opinion. They may be wrong, and, and they probably are. Besides, they're entitled to their opinion. They're entitled to that, but they're not entitled to give me the virus. Third one is pandemic must be managed along with any spin-off crisis that results from the pandemic and focus on the pandemic must not be lost by focus on, focusing on a spin-off crisis. Satisfying the pandemic will in time satisfy the spin-off crises. However, satisfying the spin-off crises will not satisfy the pandemic. Great, okay. Well, thanks. Um, Tamara, over to you to close it off. Just saying goodbye to Tanya. And uh, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. This was an amazing conversation. I think we're going to have to have a, a second edition. What are people's thoughts? I've yes. been Okay. Yeah. Well, until next time, stay safe. And I look forward to what are we talking about in in October, Gary? Well, we want to we have one of our fan favorites coming back, Karsten Bush. Okay. Well, we're going to look at his latest book of of a kazillion, um, and we're going to talk a bit about our good old topic, safety culture, and we're going to um, have a little conversation, and hope everybody mm -hmm. can join us on culture. Does 
do you do you, do you actually build culture or does it actually emerge? Mm. So again, bringing in Michael a bit of complexity science and emergence. So that's an interesting topic if you do follow LinkedIn. So we're going to take a stab at that next October. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, Vince, for taking the time out of your day for coming and joining us. Um, you gave us a wealth of information. We look for, forward to you coming back and joining our conversations. And thank, thank you, you, Gary, for taking the time to host. And thank you, everybody, for coming um, and showing up. And Rosa, did you have Yeah, a I just comment? wanted to say that, that it would be great to uh, expose more uh, safety professionals to this information. Maybe we can advertise it in that way and get Vince's um, perspective out there because it was really, really helpful to me. And yeah. also I think safety professionals really struggle with all the opposition that they face, um, you know, regarding some of the uh, restrictions and, and PPE and all of that. So yeah. thank you, Vince. Yeah. One last comment from, from me, if I may, number one, yeah. thank you for inviting me. And if it helps in any way, I didn't cover my background and that's not really important, but my PhD degree is in environmental health and safety management. So I have a background in safety and I uh, thank you for the invitation. I'll try to join you when I can. Yeah, okay. Well, let's, this will be published on YouTube on Superpedia. So let's see if we can get a lot of viewers on YouTube and it helps to, I like to say spread it like a virus, but I'm not sure if I want to use that. <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks everyone take care till next time thank you, thank you. bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. <laughs>